To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash give tech. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash give tech. Hey, it's Lily Jamali. Marketplace Tech has a new limited series out on YouTube called Decoding Democracy. With rapid advancements in new technology like AI, disinformation efforts are more convincing and more misleading than ever. So we'll be discussing how to spot things like deep fakes, how to protect yourself from disinformation, and how to talk to your friends and family about it. As always, this fact-based journalism and vital information will be free and accessible to all. As a public service newsroom, donations for from you help us take on ambitious reporting projects like this one. Every single gift makes a difference. Go to marketplace.org slash give tech. They say data is the new oil and countries are trying to figure out how to control it. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Lily Jamali. It's impossible to quantify the amount of data generated by citizens around the world. Make no mistake, though, data is a commodity, and not just to companies that monetize it, but also to governments making laws around how to protect it, who can access it, even where to store it. These choices are guided by how leaders think data can advance their national interests, according to Jillian Diebold, who just did an analysis on this for the Center for Data Innovation. She compared data policies in China, the UK, the European Union, Singapore and India. On one end of the spectrum would be China, and they are using data to kind of exert social control. And, you know, obviously that also includes economic nationalism and data protection and using data as an economic resource. And India is not really quite as interested, I would say, in the social control aspect. And they kind of take the more Western view of consumer privacy, and they do have different policies that protect consumer privacy. But at the same time, they also have this sort of interest in non-personal and data as a kind of a development resource. So that would be the second bucket would kind of be the countries that are using data as a development resource. And so, you know, I would say that China kind of falls in that bucket a bit. And then Singapore is an interesting case because they do care a lot about protecting citizens' personal data. Um, But at the same time, they also care about businesses' ability to use that data. So they've done a lot of work on protecting privacy, but then enabling things like anonymization of that personal data so that enterprises can kind of use it. And then the UK is probably a little bit removed from those. But at the same time, they're also thinking about things like data sharing for financial services. But I wouldn't say that they're in kind of a development bucket, right? They're just kind of in this, maybe the innovation bucket, we could call it, saying that they want growth, but they also do want some of these um, more Western digital rights, you know? And then the EU is on the farthest end in which they kind of stand alone in terms of the way they've currently 
crafted their regulations um, to be pretty restrictive for outsiders. And in some ways, it loops back around. And the Venn diagram could also connect China and the EU in terms of sort of limiting outsider, as in, you know, not from that country or region, um, access to that data. They do kind of represent this spectrum and kind of illustrate just how how much gray area there kind of is here and how we can't really classify data policy as one thing or another. Yeah, there's so much overlap here. I mean, just looking at the UK, you say that they are trying to boost economic competitiveness while protecting data privacy of their citizens. Those two goals can ostensibly feel like they're at odds. Right. You can't just kind of go full steam ahead on privacy, sort of like the EU is doing, and then backtrack and be like, wait, we're not growing. We need to do X, Y, and Z, you know? And so the UK is really trying to do a little bit more of a slower, a more balanced approach, you know, to regulation. They've kind of put out a few different pieces on sort of a what they call a pro-innovation approach to digital technologies, because I think what happens is that a lot of countries, they go full speed ahead, on one side of the spectrum, right, of privacy or innovation, let's say, although they're not quite at odds, they kind of pick one lane to stay to. And the UK, interestingly, and I think it's a good thing, is really trying to drive in both lanes at once. And while that's really hard, it's probably the best outcome overall because it doesn't kind of put them into a corner and kind of in terms of their commitments. Why did it seem like the right time to do an analysis like this, looking across the globe and understanding how different countries are using data from their citizens? So the G7 is led by Japan right now, and they have something called data-free flows with trust. So a lot of people in the tech policy world are kind of thinking about you know, the importance of data and data flows as a whole. And a lot of countries are enacting different things um, called data localization policies, you know, that kind of restrict the storage of data to an individual country. There's been a trend of countries sort of thinking about this. And then other Western countries are sort of supporting the free flow of data. And at the same time, no one has necessarily taken a look at kind of all the different options. And then I would also say just from my policy perspective, you know, people in U.S. Congress are pretty interested in learning from these other cases. And so this report is also kind of just meant to lay out the menu of other things that could be done and should be done, frankly, um, beyond just privacy. Because if there's not theoretically the political will to do um, privacy legislation right now, there's still other really important things that can be done in this data policy space. Well, it's worth noting that you didn't include the U.S. in your report because you say it lacks, quote, a clear and consistent national approach to key data policy issues, data protection topping that list of issues. Talk to me about how the U.S. is a little bit of an outlier in terms of coming up with a coherent policy here. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we have a lot of conflicting policies a lot of the time. You know, we don't have one comprehensive Um, national privacy law. We instead have this sort of patchwork of states taking sort of conflicting approaches, which makes it a little bit difficult for businesses to operate and kind of be in compliance with that. And then another thing is that we do have certain so-called comprehensive strategies. There is something called the federal data strategy that does exist, but then there hasn't really been any work and 
most people in the policy world are just kind of waiting here for the for an update. We are kind of, in some ways, despite being one of the most developed nations on earth, we really are at kind of a blank slate for data policy um, as a whole. And in a lot of ways, even, we're kind of jumping ahead and kind of worrying about leadership on AI and AI policy. And that's really important as well, obviously. But, you know, data is the fundamental. And so we're still kind of even lacking that. The U.S., has a lot to learn from these other countries and their and the policies that they've they've put forth and hopefully you know eventually we can adopt some of them. And so maybe that's a good note to end on. I mean, what do you uh, think about how U.S. data policy should be shaped based on what you've learned? Yeah, I mean, I think what's really important is to kind of try and take that two lane approach. You know, you don't want to only focus all your energy on privacy, especially because we kind of seem to be hitting a wall. And while, again, I think it's pretty universal at this point, we need comprehensive privacy legislation. We should also be working on, you know, strategies for data sharing, data flows across borders. But, you know, I think if we get bogged down in privacy, you know, we're not leading on that. And we can't because other countries already have the privacy legislation. So I think it would be Uh, more fruitful, frankly, to focus our efforts on these other um, types of policies. That was Jillian Diebold, a former policy analyst for the Center for Data Innovation. We've got Jillian's analysis on our website, marketplacetech.org, if you're interested in learning more. Here in the U.S., in the absence of a federal strategy, states have been crafting and passing their own data laws. They've mostly been focused on protecting consumer data privacy. The International Association of Privacy Professionals has a tracker of states that have passed or proposed data privacy legislation and when those laws take effect. So far, 12 states have legislation specifically on consumer privacy, but most states don't have any such laws on the books. Daniel Shin produced this episode. I'm Lily Jamali, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.